Revelation chapter 21 in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, look on with someone next to you. They'll be happy to share. Revelation chapter 21. It's at the back of the book. Okay. Let's pray again. Lord, we thank you now for the opportunity to open up your word and to hear from you. And we ask for just that, that we would hear from you. Lord, we don't want the opinions of man... We don't want the thoughts of man. We want the opinions and the words and the thoughts and the truth of God. And we want the word of God to dwell richly in our hearts and to transform us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so do a work in us as we open up your word. We say together that Jesus, you are the head of the church. You are the senior pastor. You are the ultimate leader. We say that you are the king of the universe, that you're the one who spoke everything into existence and that all things exist for you and your glory. And we want that to be true of our lives and our church. And so speak to us, Spirit of God. We ask together that you would please anoint me to communicate your truth, that I wouldn't mess it up, but I'd be faithful to your word and your character. And that you bless our hearts. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So a brand new mini-series here. And this series is called This Is Reality. Theological, missional, and relational. This is reality. Theological, missional, relational. What it is, is a short attempt to identify, to explain, to remind ourselves, to ask and answer afresh why we do what we do as a local expression of God's church. And these three words, theological, missional, relational, have kind of become a paradigm for us as a church as we're growing, as we're trying to figure out how can we be faithful to the gospel in the communities that God has planted us in? How can we be faithful to the gospel, the word of God, and King Jesus as we're presented with new opportunities, with new possibilities, as we look at different ministries and and ways of doing things? How can we continue to be faithful to Jesus? These three words and the concepts that are associated with them become a paradigm through which we could kind of prayerfully run stuff as a church, run stuff through this paradigm to figure out what we ought to be doing. For example, if we're given a new opportunity, you know, a program or a ministry or a partnership or whatever it is, we we need to ask the Lord about that. We need to process that with the Lord. And what will help us is if we ask ourselves, well, what's important to us? Well, theology is important. That is to say, We want to be biblical and consistent with the character of God, right? So theology is important important when we're trying to figure out what it is we ought to do as the church. What else is important? Well, mission is important. We want to be purposeful about proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel to the world around us. What else is important? Well, relationships are important. We want to make sure that whatever we're doing, it keeps us in a right relationship with God and it keeps us in the place of caring for and loving people in the name of Jesus. 
So as we're trying to determine how do we interact with culture at this moment in church history, what do we do and who are we as a church? We run it through that paradigm. Is it theological, consistent with the Bible and the character of God? Is it missional? Is it keeping us proclaiming and demonstrating who Christ is? And is it relational? Does it keep us right with God and loving for and caring people in the name of Jesus? So we're going to take three Sundays here to just identify how those concepts shape and inform who we are and what we do as a church and as a family of churches, all the realities together. Part of the fun part of this series is that the other reality, teaching and preaching pastors from uh, San Francisco and Stockton and LA, we've been getting together during the week and studying for this together, sensing that all of our churches need to go through this. So the Lord's speaking to us as a family of churches. First thing that we want to say this morning is that reality is theological. Reality is theological. What in the world does that mean? Well, what is theology? Theology is the study and the understanding of who God is. Theology is the study and the understanding of who God is. So to say that reality or anything is theological is to say that it has something to do with, it concerns itself with who God is. It's related to theology, the understanding of God. The church is supposed to be theological, related to, concerned about who God is. So when we say the church is theological, we are saying that the church bases its identity and its activity on an understanding of who God is. Okay? The way that we see ourselves and the things that we do are to be based on an understanding of God. To say that the church is theological is to say that there is something, theology, and someone, God, that transcends time, place, and culture and creates, sustains, empowers, and leads the church. There is something theology and someone God who transcends time, culture, place, creates, sustains, empowers, and leads the church. So that the church being theological means it's deeper than fads, It's deeper than the current popular programs. It's deeper than the latest techniques. It's deeper than stylistic issues. Okay? There's something that transcends that. Our understanding of God shapes and informs who we are and what we do. Also, to say that the church is theological is to say that the church is not based on any other ology. To say that we're based on theology is to say we're not based on any other ology. For example, the church is not based on anthropology. We're not based on the study and the understanding of humanity. Nor is the church based on sociology. We're not based on a study and an understanding of society. We interact with these things. We want to interact with humanity. We want to interact with society. But the needs of humanity and the needs of society and the dictums and the dictates of those don't drive us, identify us. They don't do that. Theology drives us. Theology gives us our identity and our mission. It shapes who we are and what we do. Not the needs and the dictums of culture. 
We want to interact with humanity and society with theology in a way that is understandable. But theology sets the course of the church, not just culture. We need to understand that. And having said that, we also need to understand that because the church is universal, it exists in all sorts of local expressions in innumerable different cultures, contexts, and societies. So that different local churches will look different ways. And that's good. That's okay. Every church has to struggle with contextualization. How do we, in the context that we're in, best proclaim, explain, and demonstrate Jesus to people? Every church has to identify the context that it's in and struggle with how we best communicate Christ within that cultural context. So because of that, different churches in different cities and different countries and different places are going to look different to the glory of God as the Spirit of God leads. That's good. That's really good. Our campus in Carpinteria will even be different from our campus in Ventura because it's a slightly different context. So that's true with the church universal all around the world. But there should be certain non-negotiables, certain things that don't change, certain constants. So that we want to say, if the church is theological, then it needs to be the following things. If a church is theological, it needs to be number one, centered. It needs to be number two, learning. The church needs to be number three, praying, and number four, worshiping. If a church is going to be theologically driven, it needs to be centered, learning, praying, and worshiping. So what we want to explore is how each one of those things directs what we do and how we look as a church. So first of all, as reality, we are a centered people, a centered people. Look here in Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. It says, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. Stop right there. What we have is a new beginning, the new heaven and the new earth. When God once and for all, having dealt with sin, sets things just how he wants them to be. And what we see is that God wants things to be in such an order that he is in the midst of the people. He's there in their center. He is among the people. This is not only true in the new heaven and the new earth. This is true throughout time. When God told Israel to construct the tabernacle where they would meet with God, where he would manifest his presence, he also instructed Israel how they should camp out in relation to the tabernacle. And they were to organize themselves in tribes around the place where God's presence was and where they could find God perfectly around it so that Israel understood God is in the center. It's a historical 
reality of God's design that he be in the center of his people. It is a future reality of God's design that God would be in the center of his people. Now, we are an eschatological community. Big word. Oh, no. We are a community of people that live according to future realities in the present time. We are a continuation of the historical sense of God being in the midst of his people, and we are a foretaste of the prophetic sense of God being in the midst of his people. The point being, we need to be centered on Jesus. Jesus needs to be in the middle of all that we do as a church. We need to be a centered people, centered on and gathered around Jesus Christ so that we can call ourselves theocentric, God-centered, Christocentric, Christ-centered, rather than anthropocentric, people-centered, right? We are a God-centered people. Now, when we say that Jesus is at the center we are simultaneously saying that there are other things that we will keep from being the center or center stage, so to speak. We don't want people to become the center focus of the church. Jesus is preeminent. He's a primary focus. He's the number one issue in the church. Mission, as good as it is, can't be the centerpiece of the church. Jesus himself is the centerpiece personalities, social issues, programs, agendas, gifting. None of these are to take center stage. We are to make sure as God's people that in our own hearts and minds and in our corporate heart and mind, Jesus is the reason. He's in the center. He is the one that we gather to and for and around. And so what we want to do then is structure things as a church in a way that points to Jesus being in the center, that draws attention to Jesus Christ. For example, if you were to look at the church from an outsider's perspective, as our neighbors do every Sunday, when you guys are driving up, riding up on your bikes, pulling up on the bus, however you get here, people are watching and, and, and they're thinking, wait a minute, all of these people are gathering They're all going to the same place at the same time. They're all gathering. What are they gathering for? What are they going to do? So what we do then, the very first thing is we worship Jesus. So that if someone were to look in from the outside, they would say, well, they, they all get together. What is it that unites them? What is the center of attention? What's the focus? Why are they doing this? And we worship Jesus, we exalt him, we proclaim him, we bless his name and we sing his praises so that there can be no mistake. Oh, they're gathered for Jesus, to Jesus, around Jesus, because of Jesus. They're singing about, they're screaming about Jesus. You see, the fact that we start the service with worship to Jesus is not incidental nor is it pragmatic. It is theological. It expresses that Jesus is preeminent, that he's the first, that he's the most important thing. And so we turn first our attention as a church gathered to him. It's theological. You see, some of you are missing the point that when the service begins with worship, that's a theological expression. 
you think it's pragmatic. You think that what that time is, is a buffer period from when you're, you know, supposed to be at church to when you really have to be at church. For you, it's an optional thing. For some of you, it's just kind of a warm-up for the preacher. Oh, we don't have to be there yet. We can still stop by Starbucks. They're just worshiping. That's wrong. You see, if you understood that it was a theologically driven expression of who God is, that we gather together at a certain time in a certain place and worship him first, you would never be late. Theology would drive you to realize that it is for and unto God that it is his time in his church for his glory and you wouldn't dare dilly-dally. You would be here. Even the way then, once the church is gathered and worshiping Jesus and the worship service begins, even the way that things are laid out in the worship space or the sanctuary are meant to communicate theology. They're driven by theology. They're meant to express something about Jesus. Before the Reformation, if you were to go into a church, there would always be at the center, in the front, communion, the Eucharist, the bread and the wine. That was always the centerpiece. And that was good. That expressed that Christ and what he did on the cross is a reason for our gathering. It's front and center, the Eucharist, the bread and the wine. That was, we we could call that architectural liturgy. They designed the building, even the way that buildings flowed to point to what was most important. And before the Reformation, it was communion. And there were different theological reasons. They thought it had salvific value. Besides that, The Reformation comes now and the importance of preaching and proclaiming the word of God is brought to center because Christ is the word incarnate. And so what began to happen then in Reformed churches is that the pulpit replaced front and center because the word of God was now taking center stage because the word of God is the exegesis, the explanation, the explication of who Christ is and Christ is the word incarnate. So that was front and center. And that was good too. And post-Reformation buildings were designed so that all the architecture pointed to to one place. And it was theological. What's the center? Well, it was Christ represented in the Eucharist. Well, it's Christ represented in the Word. So what we've done in reality is we have a pulpit in the center with a big giant Bible on the front of it. And we have the bread and the wine also in the center always available, always communicating that the reason we're here is because of Christ the Word. And the reason we're here is because of Christ's finished work upon the cross. And we place those things here for that reason. Front and center. If you go into some churches, the, the communion will be in the front and the pulpit will be off to the side of the stage. You've seen that before in high liturgy churches. And that communicates something. Architectural liturgy communicates something. You go to some other churches and there'll be a series of chairs in the center of the stage and the elders sit there during the service and that communicates something else that I don't want to communicate. What we want to communicate is that Jesus Christ is front and center, that he takes center stage. That's why we make communion available every single week. Because Jesus said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And so it's always here because we should always remember Jesus. Don't bring it out sometimes. Let it be here all the time. 
So we can always remember Jesus. Even the fact that we have candles with communion. Someone look and say, oh, candles, that's just nice, the ambiance. It is nice. There is a certain ambiance, but it is theologically driven. Jesus is the light of the world, and throughout history, little lights have represented the big light, Jesus Christ. And so we have the light of the world represented with the bread of life and the blood of the new covenant, all front and center with the word of God. All of this points toward Jesus. Why are they going in that building? They're singing about Jesus. What's front and center? Things that communicate about Jesus. At every turn, everywhere you look, we're trying to communicate that Christ is preeminent in the church. The way that we gather and the frequency with with which we gather, this also is theologically informed. We gather in the large gathering and we gather in small gatherings in homes. We do this because in the Bible, they did this. In the book of Acts, we see in Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 5, and in Acts chapter 20, they met together in the temple and then they also met in homes. Acts 5.42 says, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So the fact that we have home groups is not just pragmatic. It's not just to accomplish greater accountability and more intimate community. It's theological. You understand that? It's pointing toward the word of God. And so what we need to do as the church is always make sure that we're centered on Christ. Which means part of that is in our individual lives, we're always recentering Because we get off track, don't we? We get off track all the time. If we ever in... Um, pottery class and you try to center the clay, I could never do that. That was the hardest thing for me. And my life is like that. It's just a mess sometimes. Wobble. And it just, sometimes you got to work real hard to get that thing centered. Sometimes you got to work real hard to make sure that the church is centered on Jesus because we have a proclivity and a tendency to make it about ourselves and all sorts of stuff, but it is about Jesus. So we want to say the reality is theological in the sense that we are a centered people. And secondly, we are a learning people. It's not just a vague gathering where we're not sure what to expect. We can expect that we will be teaching and preaching, listening and learning. Teaching and preaching, listening and learning, and responding. If we're going to center around God, we need to have an understanding of God. So we teach and we preach and we listen and we learn. Jesus modeled this. Matthew chapter 4 says Jesus was going about in Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me. So the church is meant to be a learning people. And Jesus connects learning with Christian living. Christian living depends on Christian learning. Duty is to follow doctrine. Imperatives are always backed up by indicatives. An imperative is a command. Do this. An indicative is a statement of fact. This is. 
an example. An imperative would be, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies any longer. Romans chapter 6. That needs an indicative, a statement of fact. The statement of fact is, you have been crucified with Christ. The old man was crucified. You are now dead to sin and alive to God. So that truth, that statement of fact, because of the work of the cross, that indicative allows us to live out the imperative that because this fact is, we no longer let this happen or we do this thing. Christian living is dependent upon Christian learning. Doctrine informs duty. Indicatives help us to take hold of the imperatives. Now, where do we get these? We get these from the Bible. We can't assume that all of our thoughts about God are correct. We can't just go on thinking things that we've always thought or that culture says about God. We need to be careful about doctrine. So we teach and we preach. And we teach and we preach the Bible. We get our understanding of who God is and who we are from the Bible. And we teach and preach the Bible as the inerrant, ultimately authoritative word of God. Okay? It's not an option. It is the absolute authority. We get this from Jesus. He said in John 17, 17 to the Father, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Truth there he uses as a noun rather than using it as an adjective. He doesn't say your word is true. That would be an adjective. He says your word is truth as a noun. Here's what that means. Wayne Grudem in Systematic Theology explains. He says, the difference is significant. For this statement encourages us to think of the Bible not simply as being true in the sense that it conforms to some higher standard of truth, but rather to think of the Bible as being itself the final standard of truth. The Bible is God's word and God's word is the ultimate definition of what is true and what is not true. God's word is itself truth. Because we believe that, a primary goal then as a church becomes to learn, know, and live the Bible. To learn, know, and live the Bible. It's because of Jesus, he's center. The Bible's not center. It tells us about Jesus. Jesus is center. But a goal in knowing Jesus becomes to learn, know, and live the Bible. So in our church, whether it's the children's ministry or the youth group or home groups or camps or retreats or Sunday gatherings or whatever, a primary objective is, hey, let's learn, know, and live the Bible. And then when we're doing things like podcasts and videos and CDs and DVDs and websites and interacting with social sites and being on the radio, the goal is, hey, let's learn, know, and live the Bible. So we are a learning people. Now, the charge could be leveled against us and sometimes is that, well, you guys have one guy teaching and he's teaching for a long time and so all the attention is on him and so doesn't that kind of take the attention off Jesus and off the community gathering and doesn't become about one man? 
No. Because theology, the Bible tells us that the church as a whole has a responsibility to hear what the Spirit is saying. So though there is the role role of preaching in the church and teaching, there is also the role of listening in the church. And we have to be a theologically oriented, learning people who are responsible with listening. The focus isn't on one person. The focus is on the word of God. And we have a responsibility to listen to what Jesus would want to say to us. This responsibility is so real that whether or not we are learning more about Christ and growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ becomes a litmus test for whether or not we are successful as a church. Are we learning more about Jesus in such a way that we're loving him more, obeying him more, and exalting him more? That's the standard. That's the standard by which we gauge whether or not we are successful. And when we use that standard, yeah, we're doing good as a church because Christ is being more and more exalted and adored and obeyed, then that keeps us from consumerism. You see, this consumeristic attitude that we have wants us to judge the church on other factors. For example, are my needs being met at that church? If they're not, it's not successful. If they are, then it is. Are my gifts being used? Are my talents being recognized at that church? Am I getting enough attention from people when I go there? Am I getting enough time with the leaders when I'm there? Do I feel better about myself when I've gone there? You see, consumerism and self-orientation wants us to judge the success of the church by all these factors how I'm being treated, how my gifts are being displayed, how my needs are being met, the attention that I'm getting. That's idolatry. The standard is the degree to which Christ is being more and more known, adored, obeyed, and glorified. So the entire body has a theological responsibility to learn and to teach the Bible from the pews to the web designers to the preachers and the teachers. Having then centered ourselves on Christ and being in the process of learning about Christ, we discover that we want to be a people who communicate with Christ. So we are, point number three, a praying people. We are a praying people. Turn to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, because we're centered on Christ and always learning about Christ, we want to be a people who are continually going to Christ in prayer. That's a theological construct. That's based on theology, the Bible. The Bible tells us that our God is a God who is present, a God who is near, a God who is listening, a God who cares, and a God who responds. That then makes us, drives us to be a praying people. Revelation chapter 5 verse 8 has a picture for us. And when he, being Jesus, had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, a representation of the church, I think, in the book of Revelation, fell down 
before the lamb, having each one a harp and, look at this, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The picture that we have of heaven here is that your prayers are precious to God. The picture that we have in the garden is that God wanted to speak to and communicate with his people in Adam and Eve. The people that we have in the period in between is that wherever God's house was, it was to be a house of prayer. And so we have throughout history and into heaven this sense that prayer is important to God. Because as our father, he loves his children. And he wants us to communicate to him. He wants to hear from us. He's given us this gift. And so theology dictates that we would be a praying people. And so we pray before services, we pray during services, and we pray after services. And the fact that there's things like a prayer team up here at every service communicates a certain theology. Just try, just try to move yourself outside and be seen it every week. You come up here and there's a prayer team. It's announced there's people up here that will pray for you. What does that communicate theologically? It communicates that we really believe that God is present, that we really believe God is listening, that we really believe God to be communicative and interactive and near, and that we can approach him boldly. We can come to the throne of grace. That's a theologically driven thing that we put a prayer team up here every single week. The fact that we schedule prayer meetings is a theologically driven fact. We believe that prayer is the lungs of the church where we breathe in the life of God because we see that the church was birthed in a prayer meeting and the church continued in prayer meetings and whenever there was difficulty and drama, the church would pray over and over again. And so we schedule, like anything else that is important in life, we schedule into our life together prayer meetings. This communicates a theology, something that we believe about God. And we pray a certain way. Again, this is theologically driven. We generally want to start our prayers by extolling, exalting God. Psalm 100 says, enter his gates with praise and his courts with thanksgiving. So what we want is not our prayers to simply be a rehearsal of what's bothering us, simply a shopping list of what's wrong. Rather, we want them to be a declaration of God's character and beauty and holiness and how good he is in the midst of our brokenness. And that's worshipful prayer. Yes, we will tell him our needs and yes, he will respond but we approach God with that attitude of exaltation. A call to prayer after a sermon or a service communicates that we actually want to do the word of God because we believe the distance between information and application is prayer. All these things communicate something about who we believe God to be. When you come to the leadership of the church for counseling and things like that, We will generally pray for you. You want us to fix your problems. You want us to have all the answers, but what you will usually get is prayer. That communicates something. That communicates that we believe that Jesus is the answer to our drama, that Jesus alone saves us, that he's the only one that's bigger than the difficulties of the day. And so we take you and we take each other and we take ourselves and we take our drama to Jesus. We're to be a praying people. So then, having 
assembled ourselves around Jesus, being in the process of learning about him and communicating with him, we want to finally exalt him once again. We are a worshiping people. And what we mean by worship in this context is musical praise and worship like we do when we get together. I understand that worship is a lifestyle and blah, blah, blah. That's great. But we're talking about musical praise and worship, which seems to have supreme importance in Scripture. Look, for example, in Revelation chapter 5, the next verse, verse 9. It says, and remember, this is a picture of heaven, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And thou hast made us to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and we will reign upon the earth. And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea, and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever and the four living creatures kept saying amen and the elders fell down and worshipped now yeah go ahead if you're gonna praise the word of God Musical praise and worship is something of importance in Scripture. It's a theological thing that we do. When God gets His way in heaven, that's going on. It's even why we say amen on occasion. In heaven, the representation of the church was saying amen. Some of you all need to get hip to that trip and start saying amen at the appropriate times or even some inappropriate times. Just be a little more biblical with your amens. It's always been God's will that his people would worship him. He told Moses in Exodus 7 to tell Pharaoh, you let my people go so that they can worship me in the wilderness. It is always God's intention to bring people out of bondage and into freedom, out of slavery and into worship. That's what he does. He takes rebels and makes them worshipers. And so as the church, we endeavor to be, we must be worshiping people. And what's cool about God is he never asks us to worship without having given us a reason. That's why the, the formula that we see in the Psalms is the psalmist would say, Lord, I exalt thee because, and then there'd be some understanding that he has of who God is or what God has done. That is why we have a second set of worship. Because we've heard the word of God, who he is and what he has done. And the right response is to worship him. We believe that the word of God prepares you for the worship of God. That having heard about who God is and what God has done, our hearts are then stirred. And so we have the second set where we can respond appropriately by exalting Jesus. Furthermore, It's theologically strategic that we don't let you go right after the sermon. Because Jesus gave the parable of the sower and he talked about about the enemy, Satan, his ability to come and snatch away the seed, the word that was sown. 
Because we don't want to let that happen. We, and we realize that that would happen the first time you go out the doors and you taste a really good donut. You're like, oh, this donut. What was the sermon about? Or you go into the parking lot and the first time you get cut off leaving the parking lot, you're like, ah, what was that sermon? So we lock the doors and we keep you in and we marinate in the presence of the Holy Spirit so that the word of God goes deep. So that there is a transformation that takes place. So there's no opportunity for the word to fall by the wayside or the enemy to come and snatch it away. That's why the second set of worship is not optional. It's not an early opt-out. Oh, I can leave church early. He's done preaching. I'm out of here. The first set of worship and the second set of worship are the most important time. You ought to be here on time and the whole time. It is this right response. And it is this transformative time. The music is merely the means. The cause is Jesus. That keeps us again from being connoisseurs. Oh, I like this song. Praise the Lord. Or, oh, I don't like this song. I don't like this worship leader. Really, I'm not going to do this one. Church is not to be connoisseurs of worship. We're to be participants in worship. The music is merely the means. Jesus is the reason. Therefore, you should be able to worship passionately to a kazoo blowing out a tune. Because Jesus is the reason. It is not the responsibility of the worship leader to get you to worship. It is the heartfelt response to who God is and what he has done. The fact of God, theology, is the ultimate worship leader. The music and the people are merely the means by which we express our adoration to God. Therefore, it's not entertainment. It's relational theology. It's interacting with God according to who he is. Therefore, it is to be participative, not passive. And it's to be expressive. It's to be expressive. Again, Wayne Grudem in his book, Systematic Theology, says, Reverent corporate worship, then, is not optional for the church of God. Rather, it brings to expression the very being of the church. It manifests, listen to this, it manifests on earth the reality of the heavenly assembly. The reality of the heavenly assembly. What we just read is going on in the book of Revelation in heaven is to be manifest in our world now because we're already seated in the heavenlies with him so we join with the angels in praising him. That's who we're supposed to be as a church. And what we want to allow for is freedom in worship. Freedom always denotes, or excuse me, worship always denotes freedom. Moses would say to Pharaoh, let God's people go so they could worship him in the wilderness. We want to be free. That's why we designed the sanctuary so that you can get up and move around. That's why we don't tell you to sit down, stand up, sit down, stand up. We let you be free. That is why we do things like lay carpets in the front of the sanctuary. So that there's freedom to have biblical expressions of worship. Because what did we see when we read that passage? We saw in verses 9 and in, no, verse 8 and verse 14 that the elders, the representation of the church, fell down before Jesus. We see repeatedly in the Psalms that the psalmist would get on his face before the Lord, would kneel before the Lord, bow before the Lord, that he would shout before the Lord. There was even dancing before the Lord. And so we make room for biblical expressions of worship to happen in our midst because we are 
theological. Look at chapter 4, starting in verse 9. And the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and to him who lives forever and ever. And the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for thou didst create all things and because of thy will they existed and were created. So we design things so that if you want to get on your face and be biblical, you can get on your face. We have colored lights. Now, beyond just being cool, which I think color lights are, beyond just being beautiful, they're theological. Back up a few verses in chapter 4 of Revelation. Start with me in verse 2. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were 24 thrones and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns upon their heads. And from the throne proceeded flashes of lightning. I don't know if you get anything from that, but in heaven, there's like gnarly lights. (laughs) And so it's not that you need colored lights to worship Jesus, not by any means, but we want to redeem anything that we can in the world of beauty to point toward Jesus. And just like we're not going to give away the rainbow, we're still going to let it talk about the covenant of God. We're not going to give away colored lights to you too. They can have their colored lights and we're going to light up the place because it makes us think of heaven and Jesus and the throne upon which he sits. And the last reason why we have the second set is to make room for repentance. Because any sermon worth its salt is going to cause you to want to repent for something. If you don't have something to repent about at the end of the sermon and either wasn't a good one or you weren't listening. And Peter said something significant to the nation of Israel. He said, repent therefore that times of refreshing might come from being in the presence of the Lord. And so we lock you in the room and we give you time to repent. We give the Spirit of God time to work on your heart and speak to you. And for you to repent for him, to him, that you could experience the presence of him. The psalmist said something amazing to Israel. He said, God inhabits the praises of his people. And so theology tells us that when we're together, God is in our midst, that he really is present. And Peter said, through repentance, we experience anew in a fresh way, the presence, the power, and the beauty of God. So as a church, we've got to make sure that we keep Jesus at the center and that everything we do in a theological way points to him and that he's on the throne of our hearts. Amen? Thank you for these things, Lord. We ask that as a church, you would ever teach us this more and more to point toward you, to exalt you, to have you on center stage, to make much of you. Thank you that the gospel allows us to make much of you. Lord, forgive us for making much of ourselves. 
Teach us to make a bigger deal about who you are in our midst as we gather, Lord. Jesus, I ask that by grace you would reveal yourself more in this place. I ask for this campus and in Ventura, that Holy Spirit, right now you would come and visit us. That you would pour the love of the Father upon us. That you would manifest the sweetness and the beauty of Jesus among us. And that that would be transformative in us. Come and have your way, Lord. Prayer team, communion, carpets, it's all here for you to experience, enjoy, and worship Jesus. Let's do it.